Okay, good morning. Wow, there's lots of people here. We should have baby dedication every week, shouldn't we? Hey, thanks for being here today. And one of the beautiful families that were up here earlier, man, it's just awesome seeing these cute babies and their parents, you know, but, uh, and we realize many of you are here in support of them. So thank you for being with us today and worshiping here at Northway. You know, when I think about being a parent, I would I think about how wise in his um, eternal omniscience God was in giving us nine months to prepare for babies. <laughs> you know, um, it's, uh, you know, we get so excited when we find out we're expecting and then, you know, everybody start scrambling to get the nursery together and try to figure out what we're doing. And um, so it, it made me think about our first child. Um, I was uh, actually a youth minister down at Vineville Baptist back in the 80s when our first child was born. And so um, being a youth minister, I work with parents all the time and kind of um, kind of felt like I knew what I was doing, you know, because we're encouraging and coaching parents and trying to help them understand their teenager, which of course is impossible, but right, you know, but anyway, we tried, and uh, but I found that I was kind of like Pastor Kevin, whenever he's talked about parenting in here, he talked about when he was a youth minister before he got married, uh, he had 10 surefire principles for parenting, you know, your kids, and then he got married and had their first child, and those 10 surefire principles became five suggestions for uh, raising your children. And then after two, three, and four showed up, he said, your guess is as good as mine, you know. So, <laughs> but um, so because I was a youth minister and my wife is an avid reader, she uh, read every potential possible book on parenting. So she had a, a, I'm much more laid back than my wife was. And she uh, you know, had this game plan, this strategy all mapped out uh, how we were going to raise this precious young child when she was born. And so of course, after she's born, it's the usual baby stuff. And, and uh, you know, you're changing diapers and getting by on minimal sleep. And then we discovered that our daughter was the poster child for the strong-willed temperament. And uh, that became very evident very quickly, um, but God gave her one too. Um, now she has a daughter that has the strong-willed temperaments and payback. And of course, we get to leave. Yeah, I get to leave. You know, say, hey, you want some more candy right before bed? Here, let's eat it. You know, you've brushed your teeth. You know, let's let's go play in the mud. You know, it's whatever. Um, so anyway, it's like a little bit of payback there. But uh, and then these kids begin to grow up as as life would have it, and we start learning that our, uh, parents don't always receive the respect that we feel like we deserve. Like. Uh, my son, when he was five, six, or seven, or something like that, was awakened by a thunderstorm passing by our house one night. So my wife went in to check on him and make sure he was okay. And so she said, well, Mommy, will you please stay with me tonight in my bed? And she said, no, I'm sorry, I need to go be with your daddy tonight. And as she was walking out of the room, she heard him whimper, the big sissy. <laughs> I was scared too, you know, it's come, 
it's always better when somebody else is there. But anyway, uh, several years ago, a, a guy named George Barna wrote a book on parenting. Now, George Barna is the leading researcher in Christian belief and Christian culture and has researched just about every facet of Christian life. And so this particular survey and research he did was on the role on parenting. And so as a result of his, all of his surveys that he did with uh, hundreds of families, he kind of deduced it down or simplified it down to about three different principles or um, approaches that pe- people take as parents. And so the first approach is parenting by default. This is the idea, the approach that simply that we're going to do everything we can to try to keep everybody happy. And the hope is, is that parenting won't get in the way of other uh, priorities that we have in life, okay? So second was trial and error. And this is the uh, perspective that, you know, we're all amateurs. There are no specific uh, guidelines in which we're supposed to follow for parenting. And so you just try one thing after another. And the hope is that your kids turn out okay and that you're just a little bit better than the other parents that you see, like at T-Ball and and all the other stuff. But then he obviously brought us to the third um, concept or the third approach to parenting, which he called revolutionary parenting. And it's really not revolutionary at all, but for our culture, sometimes it is perceived as revolutionary, and that's where the two parents operate out of their faith and follow biblical guidelines that scripture has made clear for us as far as what do we teach our children and how do we raise our children, and the end result is realizing it's a lifelong responsibility, a lifelong relationship that a parent has with their child, but the end result is that they then experience life-changing transformation that they will then carry on to the next generation. See, that's not revolutionary at all, is it? But, you know, for most of our people, it is. So as we get into it, we realize that, that God has given us quite a, quite a bit of instruction through, through Scripture. And so today, this message is, is called Carved in Stone, and you'll see why in just a moment. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, Deuteronomy is one of the five books of the law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with us, it should be on your message map on the back side of your bulletin. But, of course, we'll have it on the screen as well. So let me just follow along as we read here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, that first sentence there, that first verse is actually in Hebrew is referred to as the Shema. This is a daily prayer recited by every Hebrew from this point when it was written on. In fact, if you're a fan of the Chosen TV series, anybody been watching that? Some? Okay. Sometimes when they get up in the morning, they, you know, the, they're, they're part of the scene, uh, you can actually hear them kind of whispering this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's an everyday prayer that they would pray. But then he goes on to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So 
Moses is speaking this to the, the nation of Israel at this stage. He has led them in the great exodus out of Egypt where they have been in slavery for 400 years. And now they've been set free through the plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians. They've crossed the Red Sea with the miracle of crossing of the Red Sea where the God held back the waters and they walked across on dry land. And once they got into what now we know is the Sinai Peninsula, they hung a right, went down into the peninsula further to Mount Sinai. And that's where Moses got the Ten Commandments. Remember the two stone tablets. So now they've moved north and they're heading, uh, they're just outside of the promised land, which was promised to Abraham generations before. So he's reminding them about the law that God had given him and then how they should live it out in their lives. So the very first thing we see here is that God's desire for them is for a personal relationship with him, that they are to love the Lord with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their might. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because who else kind of quoted this repeatedly in the New Testament? Jesus, very good. Y'all get an A today. All right, you know you're going to be quizzed. Okay, all right. So, yeah, Jesus actually referenced this passage many times with the Pharisees because he got on them because they were guilty of living by some of these three facets of life, but not all of them. For example, they were great at doing things with all their strength and their might as such and that they did, they followed all the rules. They wore these, what they call phylacteries around their head, which was just little leather boxes in which they would write these scriptures uh, on small pieces of paper, stick them in the box, and then they wear this box on, on their forehead because it was to be a constant reminder of the importance of God's word. It looked weird, but it, it had its effect. But what Jesus was getting on them for and scolding them about was they weren't loving God with their heart and with their soul. And so you can see how easy it would be to not follow through in all three facets there. Whereas, you know, what we might do is we say, oh, I love God with all my heart and with all my soul, and then we don't do anything about it. I don't read my Bible in the morning, mm, you know. Um, but that's what the challenge that Moses has given them. But then, so that's the first priority, is that God wants them to have a personal relationship with him. But then he goes on with the second priority from this passage, and that is, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. That's the phylacteries that we talked about. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. And that's the mezuzah that they would put on their doorpost that they still do today. And so, uh, but notice here this first phrase, you shall teach them diligently. It was amazing when I studied that and broke it, broke it down because in the Hebrew, that word teach them diligently actually means carved into stone. And so this is the picture that the Hebrew writer would have had at that day. 
is that knowing that if, if an engraver was working to put a message into stone or into granite or marble perhaps, that he had to take that hammer and chisel and he would work diligently for hours and days and even weeks to carve the perfect message into whatever the monument was going to be. It was painstaking work. It was slow work. It was hard work. But the end result was what? That message never went away. It was there for life. It was going to be there virtually forever. And so there, that's what Moses is instructing the people there is when you teach them diligently, it's, it's, a, it's as if you are carving that message into stone into their life. So, um, I just said that. All right. So, as a result of that, parents are supposed to be the spiritual nurturers or better, the spiritual disciplers of their children. They're the primary source for doing that. And so, therefore, we as a church at Northway seek to come alongside parents, to partner with parents, to equip and support them in the role. Sometimes the church, not necessarily Northway, but the church in general, has been guilty of trying to take that role away from parents, either because parents wanted them to or because the church felt like they could do it better anyway. But no, the, what Bible is, is instructing us here is that parents are to be the primary spiritual disciples of the children, and the church wants to come walk alongside of them to help and equip and encourage all along the way. And we have a great team in our next-gen ministries that work hard on that and really do a great job about that, right? I see you back there. Okay. All right. So, all right. So, how do we teach our children diligently? How do we carve this message into stone? Well, the first obvious standpoint, or the first obvious point there, is that we lead by example. Because when we are in our homes, our kids see everything, right? I mean, they see things we don't want them to see sometimes, right? But they see how we interact with each other as married couples. They see how we resolve conflict. They see if we're kind to the waitress that doesn't serve us efficiently at the restaurant. They see how we talk about other people. They see how we handle difficult times when, um, you know, circumstances or trials come along our way. They are watching all this stuff. And while they may not think about it at first, it's putting that imprint in their lives that they're thinking about um, all the time. Um, and so, therefore, um, we always have to be mindful of what we are showing them as an example. And of course, it all starts with that first principle, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. Your kids are going to pick up on that. If they see you reading your Bible or talking about spiritual things or praying, um, especially at meals. And that's one of the things I love about my daughter's family is seeing how they have taught their girls, who are now nine and six, um, about prayer, in that when they were little, like in preschool and, and younger, when we would have uh, meals together, the kids would often say the blessing for the meal. And they would say the memorized prayer that they learned in weekday school. It's a great prayer. It's a good way to learn. It's a good way to get started. But soon after that, they started to encourage them, hey, 
instead of just saying that same prayer every time, why don't you just pray it in your own words? And so then they, and so now it's to hear them pray their own prayers. It's quite touching. You know, not only are they praying for the meal, but they're praying for everybody around the table and the dog and the, and the bugs outside and, you know, the uh, flowers that are growing and whatever else and help so-and-so not be mean to me anymore, you know, things like that. But they are praying in their own words, in their own style. Um, and so I love seeing that in our kids and seeing them do that. And so therefore, when we, once again, when we come back to verse 4, we see how we love our, for the heart, with our soul, and with all our might. And so then the second point that we see is we must teach at every opportunity. And so therefore, when the verses 6 and 7 point out, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Okay, so that's taking advantage whenever those opportunities come up. I heard a story about one family, the, the, the wife said the little boy came home from school and he says, Mom, where did I come from? Well, you know, that's that dreaded conversation that every parent is waiting for and hopes maybe won't happen, but, you know, they want to be prepared. So she, this mom had been prepared, and so she walked through an age-appropriate discussion on the birds and the bees for her son. So when she finished, she said, well, did that make sense? And he replied, well, you know, it's kind of weird, but, you know, yeah, it makes kind of sense. I was just wondering, because Jimmy said he was from Alabama, and I just wanted to know where I came from. So, but she was ready. She was ready. <laughs> but notice the highlighted terms in here. Okay, not, it's not that just you have a sit-down preaching moment at home where you teach them these things. It's when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, which reflects the totality of effort. From sitting to walking, it measures everything that you do, um, the totality of any effort that you go through. But then also when you lie down and when you rise up, encompasses all of time. Because when, if you're lying down, it's hopefully at nighttime. And when you're rising up, it's through the daytime. And of course, they worked pretty much the way the sun operated. If the sun was up, they were out working. If the sun wasn't up, they were at home and getting ready for bed. So taking advantage of every opportunity. Now, the big question then comes is what do I teach them? Because here's, here's the scary part that's out there. If we're not the ones teaching our children, we know that the world is out there ready to teach them something, right? Whether it's direct or indirect. And so Pastor Stephen shared a quote with me from a guy named Kevin DeYoung. And he just said it this way, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Let me say that one again. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's what our world is trying to do, is undo the things that we're trying to teach them and to make Christian principles and Christian values look strange. So, what do, what do we need to be teaching our kids at every opportunity? Well, James Dobson, who, who um, 
is one of my favorite leaders, has something that I'm going to say after this point, because I forgot this was first. Tell them what God has done in the past. Now, in, in Deuteronomy 6, a little bit later in that same chapter <clears throat> that we're studying, he writes this. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. And so what he's sharing here is that what do you teach your kids? Well, you tell them first what the Lord has done in your life. And so here is a great example. These people all had firsthand accounts of God doing great and mighty things. And so they were able to pass that legacy on to their children, pass those spiritual truths on to their children of how God worked to come to their aid, to come to their rescue in the worst of difficult times and how he answered all of those prayers. So the challenge is what kind of experiences have we had with God? Do we have examples of him answering our prayers or coming to our rescue in difficult times? Because those are the things that our kids and our grandkids need to continue to see and to hear. But continuing that thought of what do we teach, uh, James Dobson gave these two concepts to teach to the children. The first one, which is very obvious, and you're, everybody does this one anyway, I think, is I love you more than you can possibly understand. You're precious to me, and I thank God every day that he lets me raise you. Isn't that a blessing? And so then the second one, though, is, is just as important. It says, because I love you, I must teach you to obey me. That is the only way I can take care of you and protect you from things that might hurt you. In other words, there's got to be discipline involved there. <clears throat> so we teach them about what God has done in our life, and then we teach them important principles. Then with that in mind as well, Robert Lewis wrote a great book called Raising a Modern Day Knight, where he shared three truths that every child Every son needs to hear from his dad. And I'm so glad I found this book while my boy was very young. But the three things he said were that every father needs to say to his son, I love you. I love you. Some men have trouble saying that. But even almost equally important is number two, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You know, there are so many men that carry around the wound from their father because they never heard that. All you have to do is watch some movies from Made in Hollywood, and that theme seems to come up time and time again, how they were hurt by their dad. If that's you, man, or if you're the father that maybe you never said that to your son, or you're a son and you never heard it from your dad, man, I would just encourage you to make peace with the other and get things right and ask forgiveness where forgiveness needs to be asked because that's such an important concept. And then the third thing he says in his book is to tell your son you are good at fill in the blank, whatever that is. 
And so I'm so glad I was able to pump that into my son's psyche as such and in our relationship. And I'm very proud of what he's doing today. It's just that he's doing it in Colorado instead of in Georgia. So but we're, we're working on that. All right. So what do I teach? So then finally, we must influence a godly legacy, a godly legacy. Psalm 78, 6 and 7 speaks to that. It says that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You see, the legacy we leave is determined by the life we live. Let me say that again. The legacy we leave is determined by the life we live. And that's what we're encouraged to do based on this passage from Psalms. But then Proverbs also gives us another great one to consider. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Back in 2005, Jack Nicklaus played his last British Open before he basically started to retire from professional golf. And so in the uh, press corps afterwards in the press room where um, he was being asked all types of questions, the reporters asked, uh, what do you think your legacy in golf will be? And Jack Nicklaus just said, you know, our, the, my legacy in golf, I'm not really concerned about. Plus, it's probably going to be you guys, the sports writers, that are going to determine what my legacy is. What's much more important to me is the legacy I'm leaving for my children and my grandchildren and my family. That is what's important to me. If I don't leave a strong legacy in their life, then I've failed. So once again, the legacy we leave is determined by the life we live. So to kind of wrap this all up, Max Licato, in one of his books, wrote a, uh, a great illustration. And back in the 1800s, when paddle boats were going up and down the Mississippi River, there was two boats that were leaving Memphis, heading down to New Orleans, heading down the Mississippi River. And so they were both, you know, the paddle boats don't go very fast. But so these two boats were going kind of side by side. And the sailors from each one started uh, kind of jeering each other on. And they were offering, um, you know, doing put downs and, and offering challenges. And then finally, after a while, the challenge was made. They say, well, okay, we're going to race you down to New Orleans. And so as they took off down the river uh, one of the boats started drifting behind and what had happened they had packed enough coal or stored enough coal for the, to make a normal trip from Memphis down to New Orleans but not enough coal to maintain maximum speed for a race so one industrious um, sailor on board took a crate of the cargo that they were carrying down there, which was the whole reason for the trip, and threw it into the ovens to see if it would burn, and it did. And so they picked up speed, so the sailors started throwing more and more cargo into the ovens to maintain their high speed. So by the time they got to New Orleans, 
They had won the race, but they had burned up all their cargo. And so the challenge came from this, from Lakato's book there. How many times do we burn our cargo to win an insignificant race? And so for us, if we have children, grandkids, great-grandkids, whatever we hope to have kids someday, is how often are we ever going to be, or are we ever going to be guilty of burning up that which has been given to us that's most precious for the sake of winning a race that's not important? Because otherwise, we're not carving a message into stone. We're just writing it in on paper that can be easily burned, easily torn up, easily destroyed. And so I want you to leave here today thinking about how to carve into stone. And I realize you may not have the best relationship with your child or with your parent. And so if that's the case, man, God wants you to make it right. Do whatever you can to make it right. It may be going to someone and asking forgiveness or maybe going to someone and offering forgiveness and says, I just messed up. Please forgive me. Or can we try again? And I realize this is very, very personal. It's not just about these young parents with starting off with their kids. It affects all of us because we were raised by somebody.